Welcome to another Book Shambles Extra. If you've missed the news about these, uh, either on our Twitter on at Cosmic Shambles or patreon.com slash book shambles or the Cosmic Shambles website or our Facebook or Instagram, wherever you get your Cosmic Shambles news, what these are, are we're doing some extra mini episodes over the next few months. So every Thursday, there'll still be the normal episode of Book Shambles with Robin and Josie and a special guest. And then each Sunday, we'll be having a Book Shambles author extra. So that will be Robin or Josie just chatting in a more more focused, in theory, more focused way with just uh, one author about their new or their upcoming book. Uh, there'll be about 20, 30 minute chats and they'll be available on Sunday for free for everyone. No charge to Patreons on the normal feed. And then on Tuesdays, we'll be having another mini episode, which is just for patrons. It's sort of 10 minutes just chatting with uh, different people we've done gigs with or met with at events throughout the week uh, about their favourite books. It might be their favourite books overall. It might be their favourite books in the genre that they work in. So we've already had uh, Robin chatting to Danny Wallace uh, has gone out and we've got ones coming up with uh, Grace Petrie and Professor Brian Cox and Phil Jupiter and Dan Davis and Shappy Corsandi and lots of other people. So they'll be out on Tuesdays and they are a special bonus just for our Patreon supporters. So if you'd like to become one of those, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and pledge there as little as a dollar an episode, uh, maximum of $3 a month. We'll never charge you for more than three episodes every month. And you get access to those, plus lots of other goodies on the site as well, extended episodes and book bags, and you can be a guest on Book Shambles and all sorts of stuff. So go and check that out. And that is uh, more than enough waffling from me. So here is uh, today's Book Shambles author extra with Robin chatting to Dr. Meg J. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles Extra, and uh, today the author is Dr. Meg Jay, who's written uh, a fascinating book, partly also from a narcissistic perspective, because uh, I, I read it just as I finished the book I was writing and wished uh, I'd read it beforehand, because it, it touches on a lot of fascinating ideas of, of child psychology, and it's a book, I, I mean, I'll start off by saying, I think what I find... Fascinating. In one way, there's there's a kind of level of sadness throughout the book because mm-hmm. we see so much of the uh, the pain and the punishment that can occur in a child's life and how many right. children. But then the beautiful thing about this book is it says your destiny is not necessarily what many people might have mapped out. Let's start off right. with that research, which is this idea of super normal right. comes from studying children who had experienced childhood trauma. And can you tell me about that study which led to you then writing the book Supernormal? Sure. Well, what led to me writing it was was really working with adults who had experienced a, a lot of childhood adversity or childhood trauma but had turned out better than people would have expected. And so I'm a clinical psychologist, so people come into my office one person at a time, and we talked behind closed doors. And what I found was that hour after hour, day after day, people had these stories that um, th- that other people would be surprised by, that considering how successful the adults were, many people wouldn't have guessed about the background. But what I noticed was that so many people felt different or abnormal compared to other people because of the adversities, whereas I saw them as... Supernormal. I wanted to flip the conversation to supernormal to say, what about the resilience? I mean, aren't you doing 
better than average or, you know, sort of exceeding expectations in terms of how well things had turned out down the line. So that when that, that, that early research, which was the was it 25% basically of, uh, was that, is that right? So, Roughly well, of, of people who it might have been expected that the damage would have hindered them instead were very high achievers. Well, no. So we know 75% of Adults, really from all backgrounds, it's not, I mean, it's not just, you know, lower on the SES spectrum. It's true in middle class families, upper middle class families. About 75% of adults experience some significant adversity in childhood. And then, you know, it places them at greater risks for underemployment and physical health problems, mental health problems. Um, substance abuse problems, you name it. But, you know, some people go on to do better than expected, and it's tough to say exactly what the numbers are, partly because people keep a lot of these to themselves. Mm. I mean, a lot of the adversities are secret. But what I noticed in talking to people was that they felt so alone or so different from other people when really I knew from listening to person after person, day after day, that there were a lot of people out here who shared this experience of what it feels like to transcend that kind of you know, early difficulty. So what you, you talk about the origin story of people in the book, the kind of almost, almost our, our, our creation myth of each individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you just, what would be a, a, a good example, people to understand, of, of I, I know there's the, 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 is it flashbulb memory? This, uh-huh. this, this mm-hmm. uh, a memory which is uh, so powerful, maybe the, the first big incident in someone's life. And that, that that memory will then uh, be something that is carried with them and perhaps also be something that may well involve the forming of the personality. Right. So, so yeah, so flashbulb memories are memories, we call them flashbulb memories, because they're usually memories of things that are very emotional. So often emotionally very frightening or sad times. So whether that's remembering nights when an alcoholic parent was out of control or when a sibling passed or... Um, when you were witnessing domestic violence, when you were sexually abused, that the brain is wired to keep us alive, not happy. So the brain takes really, pays really close attention to scary or dangerous moments. And so um, because of that, we often sort of lock on to these moments, and they just truly have a big impact on our lives. So some of these early adversities change the course of a child's life. They're not a one-time event. They're a, a situation that affects the person, you know, night after night, year after year. And so, you know, you talked about there being a lot of sadness in the book. And, you know, there really is because I think you can't talk to people credibly about resilience if you don't show them that you really understand the, the pain and the power of the adversity. And how much of that is that you, you bring this up in the book, the problem of people feeling that they don't deserve the attention. So when someone, for instance, comes to you, I would imagine many of them have kept this, you know, the origin story. They've, they've, they've thought, well, a lot of people have a terrible life and I imagine people have had a work. So, right. so that moment of when someone decides that they feel, well, I'm just going to share it with someone and mm-hmm. not keep that, that, that story in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I hear that a lot of that, you know, well, my adversity, I mean, this couldn't possibly be a real adversity. I mean, because, and I'm not talking about missing the bus or having a bad teacher. I'm talking about having a parent who's mentally ill, which can be a very stressful and and scary experience, 
or um, having a parent who's in jail or being sexually abused. I mean, these are real adversities, but often because we can think of people who have it worse, people say, well, I'm not a refugee, I wasn't in war, that they feel like their adversities don't count. But actually the brain does not rank danger. It just, danger is danger and uncertainty is uncertainty and stress is stress. And so, you know, if you're a kid growing up and you don't know if, where your next meal's coming from, or you don't know the next time your parent's going to be in a good mood, it's experienced as stress that, that it doesn't, your brain doesn't think, well, I'm not going to release stress hormones because you're not a refugee, that you're still going through that and it's a stressful experience for you. That sense of resilience, I think, is in, in, in pretty much every single chapter. There, there, there is, and it, and it seems that a lot of those people, when they were children, didn't even really think they were necessarily being resilient. They were no, just right. getting on with their life. And, you know, as one of the girls says, you know, I'd come back and she'd make her cereal and she knew that her mum wouldn't be there. That's the, uh, right. the chapter about uh-huh. dealing Good with her, uh, mm-hmm. drug abuse. And, right. and those things are, that's part of it becomes normalized, does it? I mean, that's right. the thing. So is that then a problem when you, for people to feel they, they should, they can approach a therapist, for instance, is that they think, well, this is, it's just normal. This is, this just, is my bubble of existence. Just, right. Yes. And it's, it's got, it's a funny double-edged sword that on the one hand, it feels normal of like, well, this is just the way it was. Yet it also feels abnormal and that other people you know, wouldn't want me if they knew about it. So it's Mm. got a funny normality and abnormality to it. And I wanted to talk about, well, what if it's super normal, what you've been doing all this time? Because I think most, what really drove me to write the book is I had a, my agent actually said once, don't write a book unless you can't not write it, which I thought was great advice. (laughs) As you know, it's, it's quite an undertaking. So you got to really just feel like you can't go to sleep at night without doing this. Mm -hmm. And so what I felt like I had to write about the, you know, the reason I felt like I had to write the book was that I was sitting across from so many resilient strong, courageous, heroic, super normal people who didn't see themselves that way at all. And I just felt like this is wrong, that somebody needs to get out there and say resilience is not what we say it is, that we talk about resilience as, you know, resilient people bounce back. It's like they're just unaffected by these adversities. There are no people like that. No one bounces back from having an alcoholic parent, that it's a lot harder, it's a lot messier, it's a lot more courageous than that and I felt like if we can change the way we think about resilience then more people would say oh I guess I'm resilient I never thought of myself that way before you there's a a great quote I think in the very first uh, chapter which is Maya Angelou which is where she talks about the pain of an untold story Mm -hmm. and I find that from my own background as a stand-up comic I think it's you know, more and more we see stand-up comedians who, as opposed to putting on a mask when they right. go on stage, it's sometimes the the point where you can reveal right. stories that for the rest of the time you just, no, I, I wouldn't do that now. Somehow, because you, of course you also have control over the environment. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that pain of the untouched, I mean, do you, what are your encouragements to people who think, because I, I, I often think if you can hand people, and so many people don't know they actually, they can do this, so many people don't even believe that they can create or that they have the permission to create. But when people right. can create something, mm-hmm. when people can turn something into a story, so mm-hmm. I mean, do do you feel that there is a potency in the ability, you know, that way of taking your own existence and being able to somehow bookend it into a narrative? 
Definitely. I mean, it goes from everything from the research, which I won't totally bore you with, but I'll just summarize in terms of keeping secrets is is hard on the brain and the body. So we know that, you know, adversity stresses the body, but even more predictive of whether or not you'll have health problems or mental health problems down the line is not just the adversity that you faced, but whether you felt alone afterward and whether you talked to anybody else about it afterward. So it's hard on the brain and the body to keep secrets. And then what you're talking about also is the power of organizing your experience and saying, you know, no, it's not that I have an untold story that makes me different from everyone else. I have a story that I can organize and that makes sense and other people can understand it and connect with it and maybe even... Um, share theirs or say, you know, wow, what you've done is amazing. And as long as we're walking around with our untold story or with secrets, we don't have access to any of that. We're just sort of alone with, there's sort of an inherent feeling in having a secret that makes people feel like there's something wrong with them. I've found it very interesting in, uh, recently in, in a show I've been doing, I've been talking a little bit about suicide because I met someone in uh, in Adelaide in Australia and she said, you comics need to do more about suicide and it mm. turned out that uh, her daughter had killed herself. Mm. And it's, I, I found it very, that if you can, if you talk about it on stage, it seems to give, again, it gives permission mm-hmm. for that people want to approach. And of course you have to be very careful because I'm not say. an expert. I'm not, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I uh-huh. can't give any advice. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. But that's, again, that thing of finding different ways. Right. Of, I mean, you quote George Carlin, for instance, Uh and George Carlin, I think, was one of the, you know, one of the greatest uh, of of, of the stand-up comics in what he would address, sometimes nihilism, sometimes utopian, you know, all of this. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that for me, I mean, I was a, I am a psychologist and working with people behind closed doors, I just felt like. Sure, I was helping those people who managed to make it to therapy and had the time or the money or the inclination to do that. But what about all those other people who are never going to see a therapist and it's just not for them or they don't have the resources? And I wanted the conversation just to be out there for whoever had a library card and um, that, you know, that, you know, if anything, this is my second book and. Um, what I've learned from writing them is that, I, I mean, I've, I, I feel like I've helped or connected with far more people through writing books than I ever did and being a, a therapist. And so that's why I keep doing it. There's a, an interesting, well, in fact, that I'm going to ask another thing actually, because there's, there's lots of interesting, but there's another, but where you talk about, uh, a, there's a Dylan Thomas quote which is the danger of too happy a childhood. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's an end because, again, going back to the comedy thing briefly, there's some comics I've spoken to, uh, they have, you know, they may well be escaping from a, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a, ch- a child, or not escaping necessarily, in fact, translating right. that childhood. Right. Whereas I've spoken to quite a few people who said, well, I'm just trying to return to my child. My childhood was so happy. Right. That it's almost <laughs> like that's why they went into it. And I think that, uh, that uh, idea of, I realise we can never place a specific line on the balance. Right. But there seems to be, to some extent, a vaccination that occurs with a certain amount of trauma. I mean, right. you, you, you yeah. talk about some research, for instance, into uh, people who've been in, in, in the military. Right. And different levels of 
the the ability in terms of actually structurally, I think, in, in sure. things like the amygdala. Could you right. tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, there's all kinds of research that shows that people who have been exposed to moderate amounts of stress, and of course, you know, what's moderate? Like, there's, I don't have, you know, a formula for what's going to be moderate for each person, but that people who are exposed to some stress or adversity in life down the road tend to be better copers, they're more satisfied, they're happier with life, they're more purposeful. And so, you know, for so many of my clients who had been exposed to moderate or more amounts of stress, they felt like people who had had happy childhoods were necessarily better people or better off or better equipped or just better everything. And that the research doesn't support that. And it's also not been my experience that a lot of people that I've worked with who grew up with tough times, they can often not only are they very strong and scrappy and resourceful, they often tend to be very purposeful in terms of what kind of partner they want to be or what kind of parent they want to be or what their their career needs to be. And whereas some people who have had it very easy can be a little bit lost or there's no real particular reason to go for any one thing in life. So how do we help in terms of that ability to acknowledge the past without turning it into an alibi you know because I think mm-hmm. that is also a, a danger which is right. you sometimes you know people who go but well, this happened to me and therefore this is my destiny right, and right. this is you know what, what are the ways even if people aren't thinking necessarily about therapy right but, right well there's a great parable and I know you read it in the book but I'll say it for your podcast for people who may not read but it's uh, a minister told it to me so he's talking to two adult brothers and the brothers grew up in a family where the father was uh, an abusive alcoholic and one of the brothers becomes a violent man and an alcoholic also. The other becomes an abstinent man and a model parent. And the minister says to the two brothers, says, how do you think you became who you are? And they both gave the same answer. They both said, well, given who my father was, how could I not? And what you see is that some people see that you know sameness is inevitable that of course history has to repeat itself I can't go beyond what was given to me whereas other people just have a real drive or an imperative to do things differently that they say I'm not going to turn out like my parents or I'm not going to do this to my kids or I'm not going to be poor or whatever the case is that where some people see it as they're stuck other people see it as that you know failure isn't an option they just have that real fight inside or they decide they're going to have that that you know they're not going to be defeated by their circumstances what do you feel are the major changes in terms of in the last say 50 years of our understanding of why we are i mean you you, you quote victor frankel quite a lot he mm-hmm. wrote a wonderful best-selling book man's search for me right. he's you know, one Such of those who yeah. uh was in uh, in in concentration camp in the, in the second world war one of those people who uh, there's a few psychotherapists who came from that, and and right. there, I mean, it's an understanding that it, it, it's remarkable that right. they were even able to turn into that. Yeah. How do you feel since that time? You know that 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 feels in particular the Second World War and right. what happened right. there was a point of almost human beings rebooting their understanding of why we are as we are. I don't know. That may well be me putting well, not even putting words in your mouth. But right, I just right. wondered how you feel in the last fifty years that you know Harry Stack Sullivan. You talk sure. about as well and the importance of love. You know, it really. I mean, in the last fifty years, we've gone from knowing virtually nothing about 
trauma or adversity. I mean, it was really only after the wars that trauma even, or PTSD was even a thing that people could identify or understood. Um, and once that happened, then generalizing and saying, you don't have to go to, there are a lot of ways to be at war to fear for your life every single day. And sometimes that's a dangerous neighborhood or an abusive parent or an out-of-control sibling or whatever the case may be. Um, and then that obviously led to real curiosity about the fact that, well, but not everybody fares poorly down the line after these traumatic experiences. Victor Frankl, for example, you know, went and did amazing things with the experiences that he had. And so, so people became really curious about that. And at, at first, there was this sense of if we could find the one or two qualities that pe- these people have, they're like the, you know, the magic bullet, then we'll know what it is we need to go do. And now, I really appreciate the fact that social scientists have said, you know, what we've learned is there isn't one quality. If, there's, if there is one quality, it's just it's a fighting spirit. It's being willing to fight back against your circumstances and that people take different strengths. So some people take their humor and they fight back through humor or becoming comedians. Misty Copeland became a dancer. Victor Frankl became a psychoanalyst. You know, that people take their different strengths and go in different directions. There's not one thing that people have that helps them survive. What was it you think that, it, it, that led you to? What, what, why were you led to going into this particular world into to understanding? Is, is there a point where you really just... Was it a, a, a story, an incident, or is it a mixture of many things that to understand human minds and to understand our drives? You know, it was, you know, what led to this book specifically was, you know, what I said of that I'm probably more impatient than your average psychologist. And so I felt like this is a really inefficient way to help people, you know, that not that many people can make it into the office of, of you know, a therapist. And not even the writing. Actually, the, the your starting point. Oh, the starting so, yeah, point for just becoming wondered, a therapist. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's where, you know, people take the strengths that they have. I've generally always been like a people person or good at reading people. And, you know, honestly, when I was in college, I thought about becoming a lawyer. I might have been pre-law for five minutes because I could win an argument any day of the week, even if I'm wrong. But I decided that wasn't my best personality trait. And some of my better personality traits was just being very curious about people. And it's not, you know, my last book was for 20-somethings. This book is for you know, people who've been resilient. So it's not any one thing about people that I'm interested in as much as it is I'm interested in those experiences that people feel alone with and then helping them be more out in the open. How do you sometimes... I mean, I would imagine this would can be a burden at times. Some of the stories in this book and some of the people mm-hmm. that you must meet, that there is a point where you, when you see some of the cruelty possible in, mm-hmm. in humanity, where, and again, that's the remarkable thing about people like Victor Frankl, right. uh, Primo Levi, uh, um, is do you have moments where you just you hold your hands up and just go I, d- I don't mm-hmm. or yeah the, actually writing this book took a lot out of me um, because like you said there's a lot of sadness in it but I, I really did not want to write like a glib trite 
anecdotal book about adversity, you know, that I felt like I wanted my clients or other people to see themselves in the book and to see that I had represented, you know, really all that they'd been through because the resilience isn't amazing if you can't understand how bad it was. And, and these aren't extreme, you know, you've read it. These aren't extreme stories. These are your down the line stories of, you know, what it's like to have a parent who's a substance abuser or what it's like to go through a really terrible divorce. I mean, these are pretty down the middle stories but I think they do a good job, I hope, of representing how painful and scary and stressful these experiences can be. So it took a lot out of me to fully go into that for each one. Um, but, you know, when you kind of actually just yesterday, I got an email from somebody who had read the book and said, I've never felt so understood by anything before. And I thought, actually replied, and I said, you know, this is the this is the email writers write for. I mean, this is the, the whole reason you do this is so that you get an email that somebody says, you got me. That that's, so that's what helps me, um, you know, kind of see the point of it all. But I think that's also what I'm saying helps my clients, you know, when they realize, you know, sure, I've struggled, but I'm not alone. Other people can understand me. I love that line, vulnerable but invincible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> no, this is, I'm going to make it very narcissistic now, but I just, this, what I, something that I find interesting is that when sometimes the distance that is required to place the pieces into, uh, and, and go, oh, that makes sense. And I'll, I'll just tell you a story, I apologise to listen to the story about me, but it's about when I was, uh, just before I was three years old, I was in a car accident. And uh, my mother was in hospital for a long time and she was in a coma. Mm. And uh, and it's only recently that I, I suddenly went, oh yeah, I thought it was my fault because I was looking for a toy gun under the, the, the passengers. Mm-hmm. Of course it was nothing, you, right. you, you talk in the book about, mm-hmm. I can't remember whose quote it is originally, uh, is uh, that the the difficulty for a child's mind mm-hmm. is that coincidence becomes cause. Right, right. And I think that, because this is something yes, that I, as yes, I read that, I went, right. ah, see, that to me is a is, right. is a, a typical example. I go, oh, yeah, the, it, it all makes sense. Of course, right. you know, my uh, my childhood cowardice, etc., brought on by, you know, this mm-hmm. moment of thinking, oh, my God, I just caused this car accident. Right. Everyone's going to be furious. Right, and, uh, right. Um, but that, that seems to me a very, again, an interesting, interesting thing of how much has changed of our ability to you know sometimes one of the things that I dislike most is is when you see a an adult shouting at a toddler or a three-year-old mm-hmm. as if they have the same mind right right and why can't you just <laughs> right well, that was the, so the quote you're and I don't remember the words of it now but yes it's they they mistake coincidence for call I mean it's something like that but that was Winnicott a wonderful British Mm. psychoanalyst and pediatrician who you know is the best writing on kids there is 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 a Winnicott but um but yeah that a lot of times what you hear as a psychologist and it's interesting because a lot of people think that I work with children and like this is like a parenting book I work with adults who are often for the first time going in and saying, I've never told anyone this before, but I, you know, like I I was looking for a toy gun and this happened and all these years I've been linking this. And so oftentimes it's not until adulthood that people tell their untold stories. And only then can you 
examine them and see if they still make sense. You know, a lot of people will feel guilty that they lost touch with a parent after a divorce when really it was actually the parent was the adult. It was their job to maintain contact with the child. But since they've never talked to anyone about this before, you can't examine your own story if you've never told it. So it just kind of sits there with some, you know, very young connections. But when you're older, you can rethink those. That's the saddest story for me. I think the second story is mm-hmm. it's, it's not. In some ways, it's not. It's partly because it's not a dramatic story. It's right. not. It's just you. You the, the story of the father who just walks out and then right. he, he, he sends ten dollar bills cut in half. Yeah, one, one to the daughter a, and one to the son. And yeah, and you know who the heck knows why. And but it's such a sad. So yeah, the 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 parent. You know, not every divorce is an adversity, but hey, some are, and I think we don't hear enough about that because they're so common. We think, oh, how bad could that be? But, you know, for some kids, they lose a way of life, they lose a family, they lose a parent when, you know, the parent moves away and loses touch or, you know, the relationship kind of ends, as it did for this person. So, the, but for a while, the dad sent like a $5 bill torn in half, one for one, you know, half for one sibling. I don't have, you know, who the heck knows why, but obviously he didn't put a lot of feeling, thought or feeling into how that would feel for the child to get, you know, an unusable half of a $5 bill. And then later he would send lottery tickets. And my client said it was like this really shameful thing that he felt like a kid would do. He'd go and like, you know, use the penny to scratch off the the goo, the, the, the gray stuff, you know, kind of hoping that maybe he'd win this time, but of course he never did. So it's just really sad. I won't keep you too long because I know you have to go to Bristol, but there was one other thing which I was, uh, well, there was a lot more than that, but because there's a lot of comic book references in this, Wonder Woman, Spider-Man, yes, uh-huh. Superman, right. and also Alison Bechdel's Fun Home, yes. which is a fantastic comic book. It, yeah. And this is, this... One of the things, and you, and you talk about it in various different ways, but the moment where, not even because what appears to have been noticed by a child as opposed to what was actually going on, and you talk about, I don't know how much of the background I can give to Alison's book, but basically Alison's uh, father was um, secretly gay and right. she was brought up in an unhappy funeral home. That's right. part of the reason it's called right. Fun Home. And she talks about going out on a camping trip and with, with major right. incidents, and I think, doesn't she just say, um, you know, it's something like caught a fish or sort of... Saw a snake, had lunch. That yeah, was her diary. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So that's what... I mean, so, you know, the subtitle of the book is Childhood Adversity and the Untold Story of Resilience is that often people don't say more than that until they're like 25 or 35. You know, that at the time all they say was, you know, saw a snake, had lunch, end of conversation. And that the full story is often not even fully thought or told for many, many years after that. And so that's what the book was about, was listen to all these untold stories that I'm hearing, you know, that people are talking about for the first time in adulthood and, um, you know, the power of those. Are you a comic book fan, by the way? Or is that, you know what? Did that, that come because that of... Came uh... from, that came from my clients, that that was um, the, the superhero metaphor that I, you know, I 
is kind of woven throughout the book honestly came from my clients that I, I was not I mean you know Wonder Woman was big in the 70s when I was growing up but I you know I, I know a lot about comic books now I can tell you that after writing the book but before it really came from my clients of noticing that they often said that when they were growing up they really identified with you know these sort of superheroic figures not because they were perfect and amazing and strong but because they really struggled you know that they knew something about what it felt like to dodge bullets and leap over buildings all day and and then go home at night and feel like no one knows me it's interesting that i was talking with someone yesterday who was just saying uh she she um would say she's kind of a a a butch woman and she said the lack of role models Mm -hmm. and it's interesting you know because i felt looking at this book again which was the importance for a child to be able to see, you know, now that we, I was thinking of Wonder Woman, of course, right. Wonder Woman's very different now in the way right, that, right. you know, really, it's 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 not just a figure of glamour in any way. Right, she right. is, you know, pugilistic and She's powerful and yeah. dominant. Right. Um, and Hermione and Harry Potter right, and all of these kind right. of things. And, and it felt to me that, you know, it, what came out of this book as well was the reminder right. of the broadness, you know, we need to yes. broaden out on right. who our heroes Black are. Black Panther coming out. That that was a bit of a concern of mine. Writing, using the metaphor was, you know, it's a genre that, you know, of course was sort of led back in the day by white men and to some extent still is, but it's broadening and it's something that I think everyone can see themselves as a heroic and it helps if there are examples that you know we can see on a movie screen or in a book or you know but the idea within supernormal was is that you know there are a lot of people out there who've had to be strong and courageous and and heroic and you know they come from all different backgrounds thank you very much supernormal is out now i didn't turn on the i didn't actually get to the second question because i made i made i was making notes i was going to talk about walter michelle and the marshmallow test i just read his book as well which is uh is fascinating but uh Oh, PRJ, Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash is in there and those great stories. We'll have to read the book. Yeah, we'll have to read the book. Yeah, that's the. uh, (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks, Robin. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 